0: 20 plus years in broadcasting and I finally landed my big interview. I've got you right where I want you now. (laughs) So, mom and dad, I'm chatting with you on the sunny sunshine coast of British Columbia. We're going to talk about electric and electric vehicles. But I thought before we went down that path, tell me all about the first car you ever bought.
1: My first car was bought as I graduated from military college. It was an Austin Healey. A 1962 Austin Huey 3000 Mark II, three carburetors, a very good looking British sports car, which raced successfully at Le Mans and other major races. And it was candy apple red. Oh, it was gorgeous. I bought it in Toronto from a couple who had taken great care of it for a couple of years and then they were expecting. So there's no appreciable back seat in a Healy, so they had to sell it. I bought it in a heartbeat. I
0: had a little sports car, but nothing like this Onston Healing. Do you remember what
1: it cost you? I know I took out a bank loan with my friendly bank manager for $3,500, but I think I had to buy my uniforms and a beer allowance out of that. So I think Healy was under 3000 <laughs> which is still a lot of money.
0: I had a little black Sunbeam Alpine, and I got it just as I started teaching. When we got engaged, we decided that it was my car that had to be sold. So you guys, you haven't owned an electric vehicle before. Why were you interested in electric? Well, I think that climate change is here
1: and we all need to do a little bit. In this part of Canada, has grown by an incredible amount. And we're late joining the parade, but we thought that, yeah, it was something we could afford to do. It would make a bit of a difference or some others make a difference. And it seemed just the right next vehicle to go for. As long as the delay is not too long, we will press on with the acquisition of an electric vehicle.
0: Is the waiting list, knowing that you're facing a wait for this vehicle, does that deter you in any way? You know, you could go out and get a vehicle off of a car lot next week if you had to. What does that wait list feel like?
2: We recognize that in acquiring early information about electric cars, that
0: there will be a wait maybe even two years before we get a car. But I think we're
2: thinking, worth the wait?
1: I just like to get it before we grow up anymore. (laughs)
2: Right. While we're
0: still driving. While you're still driving. So that wait time is not going to deter you guys. You're still
1: interested, right? Robin, that's an excellent question. And with our age, it's a iffy situation. If they say it would be more than two years, <laughs> I think I'd just hang out my spurs and forget about it. But if we can get on within two years, we'll probably go for it.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. I know my parents are the only people having this conversation. The demand for electric vehicles is growing. Infrastructure must change to meet our future requirements. Supply chains built around oil will have to change, or at least adapt the way they've done business. And the products that we mine will have to play an ever larger role in a new world order. It's a simple fact. The global supply of minerals and metals needed to produce clean technologies must rise if the world is determined to decarbonize. Getting an electric car is one thing, but understanding the huge logistical structures that underpin the manufacture and operation of that car, well, that's something else to wrap your brain around. But if we don't adjust our production infrastructure, and that includes mining we run the risk of not keeping up with demand. So in this episode of Why We Mine, we're asking, what role does mining play in the transition to clean energy? I'll talk to Chris Adachi, Tech's Director of Climate Change, and Mark Rabin, Founder and Chief Visionary Officer of Portable Electric, about how we're preparing for our green future. I'm Robin Stickley. This is Why We Mine. Okay. To kick things off, I'm back here with Jill, the manager of sustainability reporting for tech and the scientist with social skills. (laughs) I love the jingle. So Jill, how do you feel about
2: electric cars? Oh my gosh. I love them. I cannot wait to get one.
0: Yeah. I'm with you on that one. I agree. I remember seeing a story years ago about how EVs take a lot more metals to make
2: compared to say gas cars. Is that one true or false? It's definitely true. An EV battery and engine are absolutely marvels of modern engineering and they require quite a bit of material to make while every model of gas and electric car is different in terms of exactly what it's made of there are some general stats out there on how way more metals and minerals are needed to make an EV. Hmm, way more how much more are we talking six times as much six times
0: that is a lot Okay, so how much of that material is
2: not recyclable? Oh, only about eight kilograms. How does that compare to a gas car? A gas car itself is fairly recyclable, but there are, on average, 850 kilograms of gas burned every year, and that's lost to the atmosphere and not recycled. So it sounds like a solution to our own personal
0: carbon footprint is to switch to the EVs. So then what's the holdback? What's keeping us from doing that?
2: Oh, well, to build those EVs and move to more renewable energy, we need a lot more metals and minerals. As a community, as a people, we need to move to renewable power and fast in order to meet our climate goals. But to do that, we're going to need a lot more metals. In general, low-carbon systems need more metals than high-carbon systems. So are there enough metals to make it all happen? There are. But getting them out of the ground and to manufacturers at the sheer volume needed is a bit of a challenge. So as a global community, as a people, we need to figure out how to manage that and mine as much as we can in a way that's as responsible as possible. Thanks, Jill.
0: I'm going to check in with the experts now to dig into this some more. You're listening to Why We Mine. I'm Robin Stickley. I'd like to begin today's conversation by chatting with Chris Adachi, Tech's Director of Climate Change, about how the mining industry is attempting to meet the needs of the clean energy revolution. Chris Sadachi, welcome to Why We Mind. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Chris, I want to start off with you by chatting kind of Big picture here. What are you seeing in the sector right now? I'm talking about kind of a collective we when I say we, but are we on what you would call the right track?
3: The perfect question to start with, I think, Robin. (laughs) We're making good progress. People are trying to reduce GHG emissions. We're trying to limit the impacts of climate change. But there's a lot of work to go still, right? There's a lot of need to reduce our emissions. And the way we're going to do that is through a whole host of things, right? We're going to need to change behaviors or we're going to need to use new technologies. We're going to have to come up with different technologies that are going to help us. So I think realistically, there are some reasons for optimism, both societally, but then also in the mining sector. So my first point of optimism here is that We're seeing a pretty smooth or pretty aggressive transition to these alternative technologies. You look at the number of electric vehicles that are being adopted annually, they just keep going up. One of my favorite things to do is to look at forecasts for how many electric vehicles are going to be purchased. And I remember about five years ago, there was a report out that gave a projection. By year X, we're going to be selling 50 million electric vehicles a year. And then you look at that same report the next year, and instead of 50 million, their projection now was actually that year, it's going to be 100 million. (laughs) And then each year when you update these forecasts, what you see is pretty aggressive uptake of electric vehicles. In fact, some cases it's just a limit on supply.
0: Interesting. Chris, you work for a mining company, which we know produces the raw materials that go into these cars. What is the mining industry doing to be more environmentally friendly?
3: What we've seen in the sector is, pretty aggressive movement, especially in the last two years for miners to reduce what we call in sort of a jargon, scope to emissions. And, and I'm sure most people listening to this are saying, what is scope to? It's just a technical description for the emissions associated with electricity production. The majority of our scope two emissions come out of Chile. And historically, there's been a significant amount of power generation. from coal there. Uh, but what we've started to do is convert our contracts. So in one of our operations, Endicoyo, uh, we converted our electricity supply to 100% renewables two years ago. And then we've got a large project that's set to begin production later this year called QB2. And we've already started to work on that power contract. So we've secured 50% of that electricity supply to come from renewables. And we've got a goal by 2025, we need to get that to 100% or net zero emissions. So when we come back to that question of are we on track, we see within tech and within the industry, people making those moves. It's not just talk. It's not people saying where we need to get to. It's actually taking those actions to reduce our emission. We can't wait till 2040. We can't wait till 2050. Or the impacts of climate change are going to be that much more significant.
0: Chris, let's talk about renewable energy, things like different methods of recycling, that kind of thing that's changing the landscape for mining right now in order to meet the needs of a green future and the demands that come with all of that. Can you talk to us specifically, what are you seeing on the ground right now?
3: Yeah, well, how I think about this is a bit at that large level. And I think the starting point is to recognize to reduce consumption on things we don't necessarily need to consume. And then when we do consume items, you want to move to that reuse and recycle. And we see that one of the things that's great about a lot of the metals that we supply, but the industry supplies is they've got some excellent recycling properties, right? You know, just take copper or steel as an example. I mean, these metals can be recycled so I think the first part is metals have that ability to be recycled, reused. And that to me is probably one of the key parts of limiting the environmental impact globally is can we find ways to increasingly reuse, recycle these materials? And there's always been sort of that secondary market for both of those products for recycling. But, you know, as the world looks to decarbonize, I think recycling is increasingly going to be important. But. Even at high recycling rates, it's going to be difficult to meet growing demand, especially while recycling will play a key role. It looks like any of these products we're talking about, copper zinc, steel, those are still going to need to come from mining. They're going to need to come from mining in an increasingly responsible way. I mean, in many ways they're responsible now, but we have to continuously improve our performance from a social responsibility standpoint. We're going to have to continue to produce these products to meet that demand.
0: Yeah, everything I'm hearing about recycling is it's certainly part of the solution, but it has its limitations. What do you see then in terms of an evolution of our reliance on mining?
3: For the foreseeable future that's going into 2050, and to be honest, even beyond that, there is limited, if any, ability to grow our standard of living, to meet our needs to decarbonize or meet all the other social objectives. I mean, what I think will be interesting though, when we talk about reliance is the way mining is evolving. I would say one of the sectors that people really don't recognize as shifting fairly quickly is the mining sector, specifically with respect to technology and innovation. Tech in the last couple of years has put substantial investment as some other mining peers on technology and innovation. There are all these different ways mining could evolve and is looking like it's going to evolve. Maybe not this decade, but within the next 20 to 30 years. I think there's an opportunity in mining to mine differently, but also not just the physical mining, but how we partner, right? What is the role? How do mining companies and miners interact with communities, with indigenous peoples? How do we sort of co-create these futures that we're looking for? So from the supply demand side, the opportunity is clear to me or the reliance is clear. I mean, I just don't see how you can get around this without substantial change in how people consume items. But that reliance, I think, can continue to be a good thing, right? We can support communities. We can support governments. I mean, mining is good that is hopefully delivering good.
0: Well, Chris, it has been really interesting. Thank you so
3: much. Yeah, thanks for your time, Robin.
0: Next up, an EV industry insider's view of the challenges we're facing in meeting the demands of an electrified world. Mark Rabin, founder and chief visionary officer of Portable Electric, is here. We're going to talk about the challenges facing consumers, manufacturers, and governments. Mark Rabin, welcome to Why We Mine.
4: Thank you, Robin. Pleasure to be here.
0: So tell me what you're seeing on the ground as we push to get away from gas-powered and we're moving towards this electric future.
4: Right. Well, I mean, first and foremost, there are some pretty great tailwinds in terms of regulatory. Governments need to start to make a difference and need to start to move the needle in some form or another. It's not just recycling. It's not just building upgrades, right? Our whole entire global transportation Network and ecosystem is currently running off of fossil fuels has to start to transform. There are some great regulatory tailwinds that are happening across key areas, and especially in North America and Europe, but there's also a great consumer demand. I mean, people want to feel like they're making a difference and they're going out there and they're you know, basically voting with their pocketbook and they're making those investments. So the grant opportunities or the incentive programs that are there as well. So governments and people are working together to do that. However, there's also a gap, right, in terms of A, If I want to buy an EV today, I've got to wait till 2023. So you end up kind of going, okay, well, I'm going to keep my gas car or I'm going to buy a gas car this time. And there's also the charging infrastructure. So there's a bit of a gap in that. If I live in an apartment, how am I going to charge my EV? There's that side on the EV side, but then there's also the fleet side. If you're a city of New York and you have 30,000 fleet vehicles, right? There's other challenges there too. So it's probably the single most exciting time in the history of energy, to be honest. And I think there's a great opportunity for many different stakeholders at the table.
0: Let's talk more about the business angle. Let's look at it this way. Is it showing people and companies who are running these fleets full of gas-powered trucks, for example, that the long-term gas savings and fuel will be worth it?
4: Yeah. I mean, in terms of like, like a total cost of ownership of a gas vehicle versus electric vehicle, I mean, I think it's a no-brainer in terms of your operating costs. If you can make a go at it with batteries in terms of your route, for example, if you can do your whole entire route on one charge batteries, well, you are saving a significant amount of money in terms of fuel every day. But you've got to bring it back to the depot and you've got to have access to charging. One of the things I've always said and will say here is the second that you get your general contractors and your laborers and your construction workers and the folks that typically today are driving a pickup truck or a cargo van and spending $100, $200, $300 a day driving around their region, like for example, Lower Mainland here, in one day you could probably put on a couple hundred kilometers just driving around, picking things up. Can you have them switching to a battery vehicle where they're bringing it back home and charging it and they're saving a couple hundred dollars a day? That's the final nail in the coffin for the internal combustion engine. And I think Ford knows that. And we're seeing that already starting to happen.
0: What about cities now, you know, municipalities and electrifying their fleets of, say, buses, that kind of thing, Mark? Because, again, we go back to the charging infrastructure needed to decarbonize passenger transportation. For me, whoa, that brings about a whole chicken and egg thing in my mind. Where do you go first?
4: Well, first, doing nothing is not an option. When I look at these things, people go, well, you know what, in 50 years, it'll be different. Let's wait and see well, we know that that's not an option anymore. So, no matter who you are, if a city, you've got a fleet of buses or you've got fleet vehicles or you're a delivery company, you have to start to make some moves in that direction because you don't want to be left behind. There are going to be new competitors that could come in that are going to understand how electric vehicles work, how to reroute their routes, how to charge them properly. It's not a wait and see thing. It's a let's get going now. Let's get those data points and let's understand how it works. So, we're seeing it. Cities are coming out with buying electric buses. They're also buying hydrogen buses. They're trying to understand. Where's that limit? Because you're not going to have electric long haul trucks. I don't believe you're going to have that many long haul electric trucks. They're probably going to be more along the lines of hydrogen or hybrid. But for short haul or shorter deliveries, you can do that on electric. So I think it's going to be a fine dance between not being seen as a laggard and so taking those steps, but also using the data generated from driving those buses around for hundreds or thousands of hours, understanding how are we going to charge these things in the municipal yard? How are we going to charge these things while they're on route? We've all seen those electric roads where they say, for these couple of kilometers, you're going to be able to charge your vehicle as you're driving
0: with changing times. What do you think it'll mean in the mining world specifically to keep up with supplying what's needed for this electric future? What will it mean for resources that go into things like what we're talking about here, the charging stations, batteries and the like?
4: My mind went in two directions. One is first, how do we mine those minerals? We are starting to see large mining trucks going electric with sort of regenerative braking as they go down the hill, they're charging their batteries. Or when you go underground and you're all electric, you save money on ventilation, for example. So we are starting to see the mining industry going electric. And I think that's super exciting. We're going to see hydrogen as well come in for the heavier vehicles. Absolutely. In terms of actual access to those resources, you know, we do have issues around rare earth minerals. Obviously, there's some concentration of those in key countries that we have to be really aware of energy security and security of minerals for the next wave of the energy transition is going to be critical to understanding that. And luckily, Canada does have a lot of these minerals. And we've got some of the top mining companies in the world that are here that are mining these, whether it's in Canada or other places in the world. So I do think we need to understand the roadmap If I was investing in the future of energy transition, what minerals and what base metals are going to be required for the next hundred years and start to make that roadmap? And I've not been involved in any of it, but I really hope that Canada is coming up with these plans and strategies to look out of the future in the next hundred years and say, okay, where do we need to protect our natural resources? Where are these resources going to be going? Where do we need to invest today? In that, we're doing to invest in recycling or upcycling of those minerals. And for example, battery technology. We're starting to see large-scale battery recycling and upcycling.
0: Governments can change in Canada every four years, sometimes faster than that. Will that change anything around electrification? You know, when governments change, do the rules change? Is that a thought or a concern?
4: Absolutely. What I think we're going to see, though, is there's going to be a general coming to the center in terms of sustainability and climate. This whole right, left, or this polarizing thing where it's like one side saying climate's important, we have to go green, and the other side saying that doesn't really matter, cut costs. There has to be a consensus at some point here. We can disagree on one or the other in terms of other things, but I think when it comes to the climate, investing in climate opportunities, new technologies, I don't see a government saying that's not an opportunity. It's just good for the economy to also invest in new technologies that make things more efficient, in building upgrades and retrofits, in modernizing the automotive and transportation sectors. Even what we're seeing with the airline sectors. I just read today that right. Harbor Air uh, flew their first point to point service from Vancouver to Victoria on their EE Beaver plane. So it's this one plane damn, that's cool. And <laughs> and and you knowing all of that is supported by Transport Canada, right? And their technologies help the people that help them do the electric engines like Magnix. So everybody's in on it. That's the thing I think is going to be really strong general consensus happening across all governments to say, okay, look, this is where the market's going. This is where people are spending their money. This is going to be the single biggest opportunity. And governments who aren't aligned with that will be left on a back footing. And I think that that's Longer term, even the most sort of militant autocratic governments are starting to even look at this. I mean, you can see it all over the world.
0: Let's talk about the next decade or two now as we kind of wrap this up, a look to the future. What do we need to be aware of as we try and tap more resources for this you know, increasingly electric world and future that we're headed for?
4: First and foremost, I do think government needs to understand the roadmap, where we're going and what we're doing and, and what resources are going to be required. What does the workforce need to look like? right? In terms of immigration, who we need to bring in for integration. It's a to like gear the entire economy towards both innovation, right? Really helping and support those next wave of technologies, but also putting policies in place that are not just two year, three year, four year. In terms of the resource industry itself, I mean, I think the resource industry is in such a great spot right now to really sort of start to look at what are those minerals that are going to be required. We're still going to need metallurgical coal to do certain things. So I think it's just about where can we be super efficient? Where can we have major gains? And then where do we need to rely on the fossil fuel resources that we have to get us to where we're going? For example, the hybrid vehicle is a perfect example. Gets way more efficient, get us to where we're going, and it's a great stepping stone to the next stage. So for me, it's it's about looking at holistically, being pragmatic, common sense, but really coming up with a, a bold vision for where we're going and making that Everybody has to kind of agree, hey, we're going in this general direction. Let's jump on board because I always say this, any civilization intent on surviving would not be doing what we're doing today. And I think you can even talk to a five-year-old, you can talk to a 90-year-old, what's going on today on this planet is not sustainable at all. And it's not rocket science. It's not for or against any industries. It's just that what has got us here today isn't what's going to get us there tomorrow. And I think we need to start to move at an alarmingly faster pace to what we're doing today. And I don't know what it's going to take to really have that major, major wake-up call, but we're starting to see it all around the world in terms of increasing climate disasters and increasing impact on families' livelihoods. So I'm hopeful, but I do believe that every industry, even the mining industry, needs to be at the table in this conversation, and we really need to advance this. And Canada has a great opportunity. Let's just not be so damn Canadian. Let's take a leadership (laughs) role. Let's go out there and let's do this.
0: I just want to say thank you, Mark. That was a really fun, very informative chat. And thanks for your time and your insight today. My pleasure. I worked with a tremendously talented news cameraman years ago as a cub reporter. And when we would get stuck working on a complicated story, or maybe we'd even just get lost, like literally lost chasing a breaking news story, he had a great way of stepping back and leveraging a bit of common sense with this very simple phrase. He'd drop everything, he'd turn to me and he'd say, Okay, kid, how do we get there from here? And his words came back to me when I was considering what I've learned about this green future that we're marching towards. And here's the truth. The how we get there feels a bit counterintuitive, but I'm learning to lean in to shifting perspectives. What I understand is the path to a decarbonized world where clean technologies are the rule is by way of the products of mining. So sure, maybe that sounds simple, but I don't know how many of us actually connect those dots day to day. Metals and minerals are indispensable in achieving global climate targets. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Yeah, absolutely. But that's not a standalone solution. Meeting our net zero emissions goal by 2050 in Canada is an impossibility without the products of mining. Whether it's building the infrastructure we need to charge a fleet of electric buses or changing the way we design and run our homes to have less impact on the planet, the widespread adoption of clean technologies draws a clear picture for me, a new understanding for our reliance on mining and how we begin to get there. I'm Robin Stickley. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by tech. This is why we mine. Why We Mine is brought to you by Tech. Our producer is Andrew Pemberton-Fowler. Our sound engineer is Diego Domine. And our production assistant is Hugh Perkich. Additional
4: production support provided by JAR Audio.